As we begin a new year, I'd like to take a moment to thank everyone who has been steady listeners of these podcasts. It's truly been a blast, the community has been wonderful, and your purchases over the last year have raised a wonderful amount of money for the charity Standard H supports. If you're new to the show, I gladly welcome you. This podcast is all about the lives of entrepreneurs and those growing companies. And if any of you weren't familiar with the charitable aspects of the brand, visit the advocacy page at the bottom of standard-h.com to learn more. This happens to be the last show of Season 5, and I'm about to take a month-long break, so do stay tuned for Season 6. And if you enjoy these shows, do me a solid and leave a review either on Apple's podcast app or Spotify as it'll help grow the show. And if you don't mind sharing it with some friends, family, or even your colleagues, the more the merrier, obviously. You can join the email list at standard-h.com, where as a Paddock member, you'll be privy to information and promotions no one else has access to. Again, thank you so much for supporting Standard H. Today hosts Ron Thurston, a career retail professional who recently released his first book, Retail Pride. I know that we first connected via LinkedIn, but I have no idea how that happened, if I'm honest. Regardless, I chalk it up to being under the umbrella of what's meant to be will be, as Ron and I have become fast friends. Ron's retail knowledge actually began in his youth when he started learning the ins and outs of leading with empathy from his grandfather, who built grocery stores and later became the CEO of Safeway. Ron and I chat about the misconception that many retail workers are underachievers when in fact they're the opposite, and how great leadership is most often orchestrated through personal connection as opposed to a relationship with what's being sold. We later discuss Ron's incredible journey with a litany of industry-leading and industry-changing brands and how they're different, but that isn't before we discuss his learning to drive manual in a truck and his attendance of Ford V8 conventions. He quite literally learned to drive stick on a standard H. I thoroughly enjoyed learning about his experience, expertise, and sharing the idea that you don't need to change just because the product does. Be sure to pick up Retail Pride wherever books are sold, and as always, thank you so much for listening. I'm your host, Wesley Smith, and you're listening to the Standard Age Podcast. First of all, I really appreciate you taking the time. Um, I'm actually really excited to talk to you just based on the fact that your resume is... um, I'm not going to say it's like mine, but I'm just going to say there's so much retail, right? Like, and I'm just super excited to, to, to get it moving. Um, How are you this morning? I'm great. I'm great. Awesome. How are you? Early for you. Maybe maybe the time change is not so bad. I didn't think about that, but frankly, I've, I still have my coffee locked and loaded here to my right. (laughs) Oh, good. I've had mine. So yeah, I'm a couple hours <laughs> in front of yeah. me on coffee. Sure. Well, um, let's jump into it because I'm I'm excited to to learn about all of your experience and, and everything you've been up to as of late, especially. So uh well first and foremost, where where were you born? I am from the beautiful state of California, specifically like Tahoe. Oh, no kidding. I, okay. Yeah, no kidding. And I, it was such a uh, like joy to grow up there and like water ski in the summer and snow ski in the winter. And we lived in right at the base of the mountain, right on the on the lake. Which mountain were you on? Um, what were um, heavenly? 
heavenly oh yeah for sure you're right there and so my grandfather had started a construction company kind of did custom homes um, and built some like the first grocery store the first firehouse the first schools Uh, my grandfather built all that oh my gosh yeah and so when um and so obviously when my parents met and figured things out and you know this was the 60s and his business became more of a building the building grocery stores and started working for Safeway or as kind of a the preferred party um, construction company for Safeway and sure. ended up you know building a lot of the Safeway stores on the west coast which brought my family to Sacramento um, down from the mountain because that's where Safeway's corporate offices were I see Yes. And he ended up employing like my entire family worked for my grandfather. Wow. And in different jobs, you know, whether it was accounting, finance, construction, leadership roles, um, everyone worked for my grandfather's company. So you literally have. Except me. So you literally have like ground up retail blood. <laughs> retail blood. And I, you know, I shared the story because. I really learned how to do a store visit and how to lead through watching him on construction sites. Oh, wow. I guess I, when I think about the idea of, you know, how do you motivate and inspire teams? It, it has very little, if anything, to do with what you're selling. It has everything to do with how you connect. Oh, sure. How you think about um, what they need from you. And he was a master at it. And so I would watch him arrive, you know, the CEO of the company, arrive on a job site, <clears throat> a couple hundred guys building, you know, different parts of the, of the infrastructure. And he was just this man who knew everybody's name, knew their families, knew things about them, um, and understood you know, their importance of their work and made them feel really important. And I write about it in my book because... I think that's, it's such a key component of leadership that it's never about you. Yeah. Always about how you make other people feel. Yeah, totally. Yeah. And making them feel important. And he did that so well. So even as a like 14, 15, 16 year old kid, I traveled with him and watched him. I observed him really closely and I didn't want to work. I wanted to work in fashion and I had big plans to become you know, a famous fashion designer at the time, little did I know that that's not really how it works. And, um, but I, I knew that like his leadership was really unique and he oh, taught incredible. me, you know, everything about that. So, so that's a long answer to your question, but, but it's, it's a big chunk of who I am. Oh no, that's amazing. Um, I, I love it. I, I just, Tahoe is such an interesting place, you know, like it's, it's isolated, but it's like near enough to Reno. So there's like sort of a city vibe, which it's a small city, but uh, growing like a weed. Um, yeah, that's really interesting. The dichotomy too of having grown up in kind of a seasonal sort of um, atmosphere. One and two, most people I would imagine had like their second or third home there, like affluent people. Like, how many people actually grow up in Tahoe? Yeah, I think it's very rare. And it's like, it's rooted in like, I feel like my only people that did that were my relatives. Well, interesting. Cause you said you're, you, you're interested in fashion, you know, th- it, there's such an obvious road for you to just go into the grocery store business. What 
what got you interested in fashion? I think, you know, so I'm gay. That's, I, I think it could be part of, you know, this kind of young gay kid thinking okay. about like having bigger dreams and saying like, this is great. And I appreciate all of this and the importance that this company and this business plays on my family. Mm-hmm. We, we certainly weren't wanting for anything, but the, um, the idea of kind of going to fashion school and moving to LA and kind of starting in the big city um, and, you know, developing my own voice. Um, I was first born, first grandchild. Um, I don't know, there's just inherent pressure. And I was, I was ready to take the challenge. Uh, and so I just loved, I loved the, what I loved is the industry of fashion. I didn't know if I wanted to be a designer, a buyer, I wanted to work in retail. I just loved the industry. There was just something unique about it. Sure. And I didn't, I went to fit them in San Francisco. And so kind of a, I was like, what's the least amount of education I need to get a job, <laughs> which is you know, not something I would encourage other people to do, but I was like, I got to get moving. Well, you know, it's funny because like having worked in retail so much, I would almost argue that there, and this is not a knock at the retail industry whatsoever, but I feel like a lot of people that work in the industry and or aspire to work in the industry kind of have that mindset. They're like, look, I can work at 15 because I'm in a store, you know, or 16 or whatever. So school for a lot of us was just not our thing, right? Unless you were just so head down focused, like I want to be the CFO of, you know, XYZ company and I really need a graduate degree and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And I agree with you. And I think that it's actually, you know, we make it into it, but part of the reason why I named my book Retail Pride is because the pride that comes from learning something yourself and doing the hard work right. is incredibly value, valuable. And that was not the original title of the book, but the more mm-hmm. I dug into it and the more I thought about the fact that the majority of people have accidental careers in this industry. Yes. You know, the size of the industry is enormous. It employs one in four people in this country. Yet there isn't a particular, or there are a handful, but there's the majority of people studied something else, did something else, didn't have the, the intention. It's like they fell into it and they fell in love with it. Yeah. And so like the pride comes of the fact that the skills you learn happen on the job. And you're kind of only as good as the work you're going to put into it. Yeah, and the companies and think, to you work for. Oh, totally. And I think, you know, a lot of, uh, it could get misconstrued very quickly with, if school isn't your thing, that can get misconstrued with, oh, well, you don't have work ethic. Whereas, like, it's almost the antithesis of that with some folks that work in retail because they want to work so bad, they just don't want to go to school. Because they're like, I'm already doing what I want to do. You know what I mean? And that was kind of me. You know, I was like, okay, year one, you know, 18, I moved to downtown San Francisco. I was terrified, didn't know mm-hmm. what, didn't know anything. Mm-hmm. I'm like, let me just, you know, and you, same, you kind of build your tribe and you figure out, you know, are there other people like me, you know, which is a, you know, kind of separate um, ideal as a young gay guy. Mm-hmm. But you like, you try to find your, your people like you. And at the t- this was the early 80s at this point, you know, not, not as easy, I, I think, as it can be today depending on the city you're in. Oh, sure. 
and so like year one was figuring year two i was student body president i was working two jobs i was like okay let's go like i i'm good and so i I moved to la to do two more years at fit i got a degree in fashion design like if i'm going to be in this industry i want to know how it works from the inside and the outside and and everything i need to know and at that point i was like i'm ready to roll yeah that's because it's like your your social game and the like the the minimal that you need to get a job and then the work is up to you. Yeah. No, I think your mentality was almost like instilled by watching buildings get built. Cause like now, you know, like what, you know, what a chain stitch is, you know what I mean? <laughs> like, things <laughs> like that. Um, it's yeah, it's really true. And, and that could, I think the idea that, um, which served me really well, that, that, kind of the fashion industry and the history behind it and the workmanship and the craftsmanship was a really important component to my success in retail because I understand how it operates. So did you not have any inclination to go to New York for school? It didn't, you know, I was like same fourth generation Californian. Yeah. I was like, no, I want to stay. I like it here. I didn't want to leave. I didn't move to New York until seven years ago. until I was 50. Oh, wow. I did all of my work. My entire career has been on the West Coast. Oh, that's interesting because I want to I want to go through some of your resume eventually, not not literally interview status, but like because of the companies you've worked for and the timeline in which those companies existed, yeah, is, which is, is it's a, and, and intentional. I know you said you learned to drive a manual in a truck, <laughs> which now that I know that you grew up in Tahoe. Uh, that makes a lot of sense that it was a truck. <laughs> it makes a lot of sense to my, I know I speak a lot about my grandfather, but my dad on my, um, on my, my dad, my grandfather was not my dad's father. Um, different, different set of grandparents also like equally very successful, but in more of like a traditional business kind of way. So it was very much like a Republican Democrat um, oh, interesting. These these two big families merging together. It was very interesting. So, what was your first car? So my um yeah. So my dad had this really interesting hobby. He was an early Ford V eight um, fanatic, and okay. so he collected. Um, and it's kind of some of the the road trips we took as a kid were to early Ford V eight conventions and like go to the Ford factory in Michigan. And I learned about cars like from him and he, so we had a whole like a garage full of cars that were really? all early Ford V8. So then, so the truck I learned to drive in was like, I think it was 1956 uh, Ford truck um, with the, with the four or shift, but he, we had this, um, like, I think it was in the sixties, this Lincoln with a, uh, suicide doors it was always yeah. parked in our drive it was like this variety of like mishmash cars from like the 50s to the 70s and i you know it's i definitely did not have the cool cars growing up as a kid yeah to get my first car was a ford falcon if i remember correctly oh that's fantastic well jumping back into the retail talk because I'm, I'm curious outside of Grocery stores, obviously. So what ended up being your first retail job in the traditional retail sense? Yeah, my first um, 
was at a department store in downtown San Francisco called the Broadway, okay. which eventually became like wrapped into Macy's. Um, so you can think of it as like a, a Macy's. Yeah. And I um, um, worked in kind of men's accessories department while I was going to school. Mm-hmm. Same. And then they put me into men's suits, um, like luxury suits. And I, that's where I learned how to sell. So I was with all these guys who seemed quite older that I'm sure were you know, younger than I am today, but that look like were the masters of selling luxury suits. And I had, I bought I had one suit. I got it. I remember getting it like marked down three times. And then my employee discount, it was Yves Saint Laurent suit. Oh, wow. Double breasted, like peak lapel. I wore it every day because that's all I had in one suit. And I learned how to sell. I learned how to do clienteling. I learned um, kind of construction, building a customer base, um, and kind of how to make money in, in, in selling. And I worked in a, in a card store in Fisherman's Wharf at the same time. And yeah, I was just learning ev- every aspect of the business as quickly as I could. Oh, that's, that's amazing. What was an early lesson you took with you as you climbed through the industry then? Um, you know, I, I reference this in the book, but I think any great leader, salesperson, anything is you put empathy at the first, the first of your skill sets mm. and that you listen, you ask questions, you try to understand where that person is today and what they need from you and and kind of try to understand what they're experiencing Mm -hmm. and if you can do that as a salesperson you can make millions and that whether you're selling cars houses clothing right the idea of empathy and and kind of stepping back from the conversation and saying what does this person need from me right now that you that, that's a way to kind of get into their heart and soul. And, and I, le- I definitely learned that as, you know, I wasn't a salesperson for very, very long, just based on where I was at the time of my career. But um, the idea that you can do it with empathy for me is really empowering. Yeah, that, I mean, even just the statement alone is pretty powerful. I mean, I think it's fair to say that historically, uh, I have worked for managers, for example, that it's just all do as I say, not as I do. Um, you know, very direct kind of delegation in the sense of like, I mean, I'll, it, it's interesting. That's an interesting dichotomy, but that's just managerial style, right? Like that just comes down to style. It's um, it's style, but I also think it's um, it's developing the confidence to say, I understand this is what the company expects from me, but this is how I lead. And this is how I get the best out of people. And I think it, it was may, my approach may have been more unique. We'll just say nineties, you know, 2000 when it was very, and I was the recipient of many of those kinds of leaders that were high direction, high expectation was not about hugging, you know, and like enjoying the moment. It was about delivering the results. Right. And so I've been under that leadership and it it was always uncomfortable for me, but I could get it done. I, I can deliver when I need to. But the idea of when I have, I knew, so when I have that job, when I am leading large organizations, 
I'm going to do it with empathy and I'm going to do it differently. And people who have worked for me, listen to me, read my book, they'll know that that's actually true. Sure. I'm not just saying it, that that is how I led. And particularly you think about last year as I was leading a retail organization through the pandemic, hundreds of people and, and what they're experiencing and the retail was a frontline workforce. Yeah. Like leading with empathy was how we got it done. Yeah. Because there was no other way to do it. Right. In my mind. So it was almost like I had been practicing for decades to learn how to lead through the pandemic. When I really think about it. Yeah. um, It served me well. That's great. So obviously on your LinkedIn page, you're not going to have every job you've ever had listed because that would just be ridiculous. <laughs> so what bridged the gap between big box, you know, Macy's like store there in San Francisco to William Sonoma? Yeah. So I, um, so the, when I moved to LA, I actually started working for the gap and same like part-time like assistant manager. And I was kind of in and out of there a couple of different times, but I had, had, a very much a love of, of the gap and same the eighties growing very quickly. Yeah. I'm um, starting to like launch baby gap and you know, Mickey Drexler joined as CEO and started old Navy. You know, Athleta wasn't even on the map then, right. but in Republic was, you know, had been acquired. So there was a lot of activity. A lot of careers were made at the gap right. and I spent, um, you know, I was kind of in and out, but I spent, about 10 years total um, there and learning. And that was really the idea of learning on the job, like that they were recognizing, um, oh, you're, you're good at this, let's give you more. Um, let's give you more responsibility. You're really good at visual merchandising. You know, I ultimately became the director of visual merchandising you know, for the company. And so oh, this no idea, kidding. yeah. And so this idea of, of surrounding yourself with a company that has strong culture, has purpose, leads with empathy, thinks about the investment in their people and their team because they understand that's the future. That's how Gap was then. Oh yeah, Gap's manager training is iconic. Iconic. At the, and so those were like, it was one of the, you would kind of go big box. You would either go big box or you would like limited Gap you know, there were a handful of these brands then that you would say like that's the best in class retail business and i think because you know gap is california it started in san francisco in 1969 and like the story of the records and the levi's and and how they you know that the fisher family was very invested in diversity and inclusion when that wasn't a conversation and they right. always had a unique um point of view about things and how they get back to the city of San Francisco and the, and the art scene, they just did a lot of things. Right. And I was like, I'm going to work as hard as I can to give back because they are also doing the right thing. I feel like Mickey Drexler also like came from that mindset of give me more if I'm producing. Right. So like he was probably the right CEO to work for at the time too, to make you or allow you, uh, rather to matriculate in that fashion and and probably quite quickly and i i would agree with you because it was the the um kind of the fishbowl if you will of this idea of like 
great talent all put together and then what's going to happen. So yeah. I do think, you know, brands like West Elm, which is where I went, Apple, uh, Tory Burch, these were brands led by people who all came from Gap. And that, that was part of my career journey over the next couple of decades was the, those best in class people are the people I followed. Right. And like, because I knew that they maybe had insight into things that were happening. They knew, um, they were going to make significant impact in the industry. And I always wanted to be part of that. That's awesome. So, and, but those people all came from the same fishbowl. Yeah. We were all there at the same time. Right. And, and you don't appreciate that. And I say this today to you know, students or on, on store visits, like when it feels really good, when you, when you know the company's doing the right thing, you're having healthy conversations. They are, contributing to the community. They're investing in you. You have a great team around you. That will not always be the case in your career. Right. No one wants to hear that. But when you find it, like take a moment to almost um, appreciate how it feels and then find a way to recreate that in your future. Um, and when you're young and you're like, you're, you just, I didn't appreciate it. I just thought that this is how it always is. People are always kind. They're always investing in you, that they uh, want you to do well, and they're providing resources and money. And I quickly realized that's not actually the case. <laughs> and, <laughs> you know, and, but, but there's no reason it can't be. It, it's, and that's what I want to do. I want to recreate that again for the future. But the... Um, when it's good, you no, know, call it out. Yeah. Uh, you know, you know, here's the thing is I've done that and I've gotten in trouble for it historically because anytime or in, there's been a multitude of times in my career where I would ask clarifying questions and it would come across as though I'm complaining. So it was kind of interesting because I think a lot of people, because I am so interested, because I am so engaged, like not everybody was like you and I were like, we really wanted to know how a garment was sewn, stitched, how, you know, what the fabric content was and how it's going to react in the dryer and things like that. And it's like, you're really into product, which I've always been a product guy. And um, a lot of the times it would come across as though I'm complaining when really I'm just trying to understand. So I will take full blown ownership that it's probably the phrasing or the word choice verbiage that I was using that probably got me in the trouble. Maybe it was tone. I have no idea. I'm still scratching my head today thinking like I'm the most interested person in the room yet. I'm almost being reprimanded for my interest level. Like, <laughs> And, it, and it's really unfortunate because I would look for people like you, like he's so curious, like give him more. Right. You want to learn how it's constructed? Like let's send you with the buying team. Let's do other visits. Let's figure out manufacturing. Like if you have an interest level, let's feed that and give you more instead of being annoyed that you're asking too many questions. Right. I, it's, I'm, I'm sorry that happened to you, but it's, I'm not shocked by it. No, right. Right. Neither am I. <laughs> and and yeah but i think that when i say that like your career is sometimes as successful as the like the company you work for but more importantly the leaders you surround yourself 
totally. I 100% believe that's true. Yeah. And that your career can grow or stall based on the people on those leaders that sit above you. I, I totally agree with you. And I want to touch on that a little bit later, because I want to ask you specifically, kind of, as you were navigating from company to company, well, shoot, we could talk about it now. You know, very oftentimes when you go from company to company or as you get promoted, a lot of that is a byproduct sometimes in this industry where a CEO left like at a high level position, right? Like a regional manager or something, you know, a lot of times people take people, right? Like when, when somebody jumps from one boat to another, they'll take, you know, Ron Thurston with them because they know Ron Thurston's like the man, right? Like he's very good at what he does. He makes me look good as a leader. Uh, by all means, we have a great rapport and boom, let's both jump ship or give me three months and you'll be receiving a phone call, you know, for a quote unquote interview for an open position. Yep. How many times did that happen to you? If any? Uh, it happened to me. Um, I'm going to say four. Yeah. I mean, that's a, that's a fair amount. I would say. Yeah. It's a fair amount. And and, and some of it was me reaching out sometimes. And then it was like, well, of course, like, we'd love to have you here. And yeah. some of it was like, you're coming with me. Right. And, and I also think that there's a point in your career where your reputation is also part of the journey here. Sure. As new, new CEOs and new brands of like, who's the best in this? And you should have a reputation for like what you're really good at. Yeah, and I'm also a product guy, but I uh, because I just I love everything about it. But I also reference the fact that I worked at Apple. You know, I sold furniture, I sold baby clothes, I've sold like the highest end of luxury um, at Saint Laurent. Like I've sold anything, and I but I've done it in a very similar way. I didn't change me because of the product. Right, the product changed. The product changed. But the, I was there at the right time and I wanted to be at those brands at that time. And so part of the reason I was able to do that is because of those people you described that were at the top. And so I'm like, you're at the top. I know you're going to do amazing things. I want to be part of this. If you haven't heard episode one of the Standard Age podcast, then let me tell you about my friend Tim Jackson. As owner of Passion Fine Jewelry, Tim and his team specialize in fine jewelry, as well as some of the finest independent watch brands available. I'm talking about Gronfeld, Habring, Kudoki, Roger Smith, Roman Gauthier, Sarpaneva, the list goes on. The staff at Passion Fine Jewelry is literally made up of friends and family, so you will feel right at home if and when you visit. If California is out of reach, you can absolutely email or call the shop and they'll get you sorted. Visit passionfinejewelry.com for more information. As you all know, I'm a huge fan of using the right product for the right job. And like many of you, I appreciate products with a story. That's why I drive a Volkswagen GTI. It's a hot hatch with heritage. It's also why I'm into specific watches like my Tudor Black Bay. And that's exactly why I'm a fan of the indie accessory brand Contonement. Contonement makes a utilitarian cloth they simply call a kerchief. It's smaller than a standard bandana, but larger than a handkerchief, which makes it ideal to tuck in a back pocket or use as a neckerchief. I always take one on a bike ride or have one with me as a backup face covering. 
Not only do these kerchiefs satisfy several functions, but they look great too. Each set features illustrations celebrating icons of product design like the Omega Speedmaster, the Fender Stratocaster, or my favorite of course, a classic GTI. Follow them on Instagram at Contonement Co. That's C-A-N-T-O-N-M-E-N-T-C-O or visit them at Contonement.co. And use the code STANDARDH in all caps, no spaces, for 20% off of absolutely everything in their online shop. Now let's get back to the show. Okay, so can you clarify something really quickly? When you said that you wanted to be at those companies at that time, because as earlier, as I stated, like, I'm very well aware on the timeline here, like, what was going on at those companies during those years. And I was like, either you have a crystal ball or... (laughs) Like, so at first I thought it was all you. So now are, are you, are you saying that like some of the people were saying, Hey Ron, you might want to come here kind of thing. I think it was a combination of both. Okay. I, I really do believe that it was. A, yeah. Um, That's amazing. You know, I think about, I think about Apple. So I was running uh, West Elm at the time in the kind of South, Southeast, super like high growth mode. Um, and opening stores, I was up open stores in Puerto Rico and all over Florida and, um, all over the South, the Southeast. And, um, and I just remember the conversations of like, who's at Apple right now. And the recruiters were after me. I'm like, I know the players, I know who's here. Mm. I've always worked in some version, even West Elm is really like fashion for your home. I've, you know, it's. It's not really, you know, it's not in the same early days. Um, and like, we'll talk about another company that people grew up in at Williams Sonoma, mm-hmm. San Francisco based, like incredible culture. Chuck mm-hmm. Williams was still alive then. He would come to our conferences, like iconic brand. But I was like, what is going on at Apple? And like, and I knew who the players were. And so I had been running at this point in my career, I had, been a regional manager. I had run 150 stores at a time. Wow. I was starting to West Elm. Like I was high on the on, you know, probably um, more senior even for my age. You know, at that time, like late 30s. Yeah, I was gonna say you you had to be. Yeah. I was young, and and Apple said we'd love to have you. We're gonna put you. Um, and I, I had to go to Cupertino and meet Ron Johnson and like the whole thing. Yeah. And we're going to put you in a suburban Houston store and um, you're going to go back and run a store again as a store manager. And I was like, done. I took a pay cut. I mean, I like, I'm, I'm going to start over. And this was 2000. Uh, I launched iPhone 2, 2008, 2009. Um, and it was the best thing I ever did. Because it's like you go back and you learn the things that you know you're really good at. It was this same, like most of the stores had been opened within the last couple of years. They were open for iPhone one. And it was this random like mishmash team of people in the suburban store. It was the lowest volume store in the city of Houston. And I was like, (laughs) I think they were ready for like Ron Thurston to come in the door. Right. And the, the best part about it is that, you know, we, we will never be the highest volume store, 
but we're going to have the best service in the world in this store. And I took that team like on a journey of the next year saying we were launched iPhone two, MacBook air, iPad, like these were all big product launches. And we won awards for the best service in the world in that store. Oh, incredible. So there's so much I want to ask you because like, well, first of all, you're probably not in the Galleria, right? Like you're no, it was like, in, it was in Bay, it was in Bay Brook. Galleria was the, was like probably the number one, right? It was yeah, the number one and so, like top five in, in the, in the world. Right. That, I mean, that makes sense for Houston specifically, but the world that's incredible. But like the, the dichotomy too, of going from somewhere like years ago, right. Gap stack them high, watch them fly to like this minimalistic sales per square foot through the roof, like literally industry leading. What were some of the philo- like philosophical differences between like, say, uh, uh, an apparel brand versus like now this tech company? Yeah, I think philosophically, which is very true today for Apple, you know, it isn't, it isn't really your opinion about how to do things as much as it is you are um, immersed in your love of the, of the brand and the culture yeah. and someone else is doing product. And you know, mm-hmm. so I had grown up in this world, especially like starting brands where it's like everything that you do is based on feedback you receive from the field right. and your customer. And so you pivot the model of like, well, this design doesn't work. And this, um, how we merchandise this drove more sales. So you're always in like this test and learn mode, especially in fashion all the time. You're always testing new things. And with a visual merchandising background, I just love to play with products yep. and drive sales based on, on the work that you do. Mm-hmm. And Apple was very much of like, we want you to create, and still today, create experiences that are best in class but we don't need your feedback on the product and we don't need your feedback on like how the store is built and all of it. And it, I, I'll be honest, I struggled with that. I was going to say how stifling was that for you? Cause then you got 50, 50% of the workload just disappeared. <laughs> it's exactly. So all that energy that I would have that put into product and merchandising and I put into people and that's, which is why we had such great service. And there's a good chunk of that store here we are 12 years later, probably who are still, we're still highly connected. The managers that let, that were on my team, a lot of like the specialists, they're still, we're still connected mostly on social. Oh, that's beautiful. And, and there's a, even a quick story in, in my book about it, but this idea of like this kind of scrappy, like, but what are we going to be known for here? And like, we're going to be known for service. And that's exactly what we did. And to be able to do that and say, yeah, the Galleria does triple our business, but their NPS scores are not nearly as close as ours. So to be able to say, we have some of the best service in the world here in this little store that no one knows much about, for me, was really empowering. And like, how do you recreate? So then I spent about a year as a store manager. Then I got promoted and ran all the stores in Houston because it's like, well, this guy knows what he's doing. And I think at the top, they were like, this was just a placeholder for Ron to see if in fact he could do it. And then let's give him more. Oh, interesting. But the, um, I also, 
I think could recognize that this was not where I wanted to spend my time long-term, which was very unusual. It is unusual at Apple. Why do you say that then? I think because, and there's a lot of tenure there, but I also- Kind of a glass ceiling? A, a little bit of that, but I also love creating. I love like saying that like you when you meet, lead with empathy, like I mentioned, if if you really listen to what people are telling you, you change how you operate, how you train, how you lead based on what they tell you. Mm-hmm. And I always want to be in that seat of like, you know what, what this worked really well. Today they need something else. And to be a little more of a creator and a, mm. and a, and an influencer um, in a different sense of the word of how companies operate. And I wanted, I, I knew I wanted to grow and kind of be at, at the top of the chain and that would never happen there. Um, so I was very appreciative of, of what I learned and how I did it. And um, you learn about great culture, mm-hmm. but I, I knew that, it was not going to be, I think I was there like two and a half years during really pivotal moments. Right. Uh, and learned different, just a different side of this business mm-hmm. that I um, very much still have in my, my toolbox. That's awesome. Um, not everybody is a retail head uh, historically the way we are. Can you just quickly go through what an MPS score is and why it's important? Yeah. So MPS stands for net promoter score. So when you, and it's the, it's the score root of it is your likelihood to recommend. So when you get surveys from airlines and car rental places and hotels, the first question is how likely are you to recommend um, shopping, staying here, you know, at this company with this person. And so that idea of like, if you give a brand a nine or a 10 on those surveys, you're, you're likely our promoter. So the net right. promoter score means you're going to promote that brand. If you give that somewhere between zero and five, you're a detractor. You're going to right. say something negative about that brand to your friends and family. Right. And if you're in the middle, if you're like six to eight, you're considered passive. You're like, it's fine. I didn't love it. I didn't hate it. It was fine. And those, that's the death of, you know, of a retail brand. Right. If you right. hate, if you hate me, it's fine. I'm going to fix it for you. Right. And if you love me, great. I'm going to welcome you back and celebrate you. But usually stores that have great results in net promoter score also have better business results. Mm-hmm. You know, it all goes hand in hand. Sure. And I don't mind a detractor because I love to turn that around to someone of like, thank you so much for telling me where we failed. I'm going to solve this for you and you're going to become a promoter. I love yeah. that challenge. You know, what I hate is like the car dealership that says, Hey, uh, how was the service today? And how was the service manager? Make sure you give us all tens. And it's like, what a lousy waste of everyone's time. (laughs) Totally. And they get bonus on those things for the exact same reason. Right. Is that, and, but it's, it all goes to corporate, you know, it goes to corporate and, you know, sales are bad and your service scores are bad and that you're going to be out the door. So I, I understand their intent, but it's so shady when you do that. Right. Uh, or like once in a while, I get that from an Uber driver here in New York and I'm like, whatever, dude, like, yeah, you know, I'll, I'll give you the score that you deserve. And I think, um, which most of the time here is pretty good. Yeah. But I think kind of sway it in this um, world. And so I've used MPS really my entire career as a, right. as a benchmark to say, right. you know, 
stores that are challenged in business, but high MPS scores, you know that they're doing a lot of things really right. The customer loves you. You probably then have the wrong product. Maybe it's a real estate problem. You know, let, let's dig out what the things I can help you fix are because mm-hmm. obviously the customer experience is phenomenal. Right. Same, but if bad results and bad, bad MPS scores is a recipe for disaster for the team. So, and that's how I look at it. Oh, it's perfect. Yeah. Thanks for, for explaining that for those, um, listening. I, um, yeah, I, I think the, the car dealership was a recent example that I experienced and it was just like, I said it was a lousy waste of time. It was actually a wonderful waste of time. It was, it's very efficient at wasting time. <laughs> um, so, okay. Next came Tory Birch, which I'm, I'm fascinated by going from something like an iPhone and MacBook air to like boots and ballet flats right like i mean it's just (laughs) kind of i i'm and she took off like a rocket she got funding her valuation shot through the roof like i don't know within three years or some such um yep and then obviously you know i'm I'm not here just to talk about tori birch because we could talk about a litany of things but like what was that experience like um so the to your questions earlier about following someone, Satori is someone. So the head of retail for Apple, not Ron Johnson, but kind of Ron Johnson's next direct report, VP of stores, mm-hmm. went to Tori as like an SVP of global retail okay. or very early on. And um, also from Gap. So there's his name's Matt Marcotte. Today he's at, at Salesforce. And we're still you know connected. We met in the probably early 90s. And it's so similar. That was one of those of like, you're coming with me. Right. Cool. And I'm going to let you. So Tori's number one, first store number one was here in New York on Elizabeth street. Yeah. Store number two was on Robertson in LA. Yes. And, um, and it started to grow. So I think we were probably at like 20 stores when I joined I mean, it was small and you're right. Those early years of like funding and growth. And he's like, all, and I was still in Houston because I was at Apple. He's like, you want to go back to LA? I'm like, definitely want to go back to LA. Right. And he's like, you can um, open all the stores on the West Coast and run um, kind of the West Coast region. So do they already have like plans early on to just open a boatload of stores? I don't think they had significant plans, but they knew there was going to be a growth strategy, like a wholesale strategy and a retail strategy. So I officed out of that store in Robertson, but, um, and South coast was already open, um, by you in fashion Valley that was already open. So it's probably, you know, these were top 10, like those three were top 10 in revenue. And then I just like jumped in and we started opening, I opened both stores in Hawaii, you know, all from Vancouver, all the way down the West coast, um, Vegas, um, Arizona, I like opened everything on the West Coast and same, just built this infrastructure of uh, kind of the business, the team, the culture. You know, she speaks very openly about the fact that she started the brand to build a foundation, right. to give back to to women and entrepreneurs. And, you know, I found that very, like kind of founder led, you know, I love this, it's kind of back to who I am. I love the fact that there's pictures of her family in every store and her parents, she talks about all of her inspirations. Um, 
and the furniture replicas of her home, the wallpaper. And so my last big project was opening the flagship on Rodeo Drive. Oh, um, which was, you know, this kind of roof, a rooftop, you know, VIP floor. Um, it was three, a, a three story building. And it's like the best the ultimate expression of the brand. Right. I had a phenomenal like six, six year, I think run. Um, but you know, this idea of expressing your own vision, that is very much like who you are. Uh, and that is rooted in service and like knowing who your customer is. Mm-hmm. So kind of the opposite of, of my Apple description, this was about feedback from the field and feedback right. from customers about product. Right, right. All the, all the time. Constant feedback loops, constant meetings here in New York about product, you know, a lot of work into this. Um, and it was still predominantly a, like a handbag and shoe brand. Right still is, but there's always a fashion component to make it interesting and to have a runway show and to build a business. Yeah. Um, but it, I had incredible people at that time and it was an easy brand to recruit for. Everybody wanted to be there. Yeah. It's like this, I, I like I, I could hire the best of the best and build yeah. these teams. And Hawaii at the time was the highest volume market in the world because it was such a big Asian following. Right. Like Honolulu was booming. Um, we had lines at the door every day. There was like yeah. 100, 200 people in line at these stores in Hawaii. So I was there all the time. Um, and we opened the big flagship on Kalakaua. Same, like ins- insane amounts of revenue. Well, I can only imagine what that stock room looked like. <laughs> it's, it, like so much inventory and so much, um, you know, offsite storage, like same Hawaii offsite shoes. built like buildings yeah. of shoes, St. Rodeo drive. There's an entire warehouse of inventory, you know, a couple of blocks away because we were doing so much revenue. Wow. That's incredible. Yeah. Well, again, so you, you, you went from like Apple who was sort of designated as reinventing retail. Then you go back to Tory, which is like what I say by back is like back to a traditional sense of retail, only to leave to go to another reinventor of retail in Bonobos. So like, it's kind of crazy. And for those who've never shopped at Bonobos, not that this is an advertisement, but like, it's a, it's a very unique model. So when you don't have inventory literally to sell, you don't take cash there's just samples, if you will, right, to try on and get your sizing right. And then you order and it's on your doorstep in two days. Wonderful. How is the leadership different in that model than say Tori, for example? Uh, So I would... Because really it's just the transaction changed. Is the leadership any different? The leadership in that, at that particular time, you know, with Andy... In a very much same founder-led, big ideas, lots of energy, different than Tori, you know, in in how he um, thought about the business. She's a little, she's kind of a little more behind the scenes, a little more subtle, a little more elegant. And you know, Andy was definitely out there, you know, loved to be on television, loved the news, and just had, had these big ideas about what the future of retail is. And um, flew to LA a couple of times. Um, to meet me and it was like, we want to build this 
um, entirely new business model in retail, and we have no idea what we're doing. And you're 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 the guy to do this. <laughs> and say like to finally, after decades, honestly, of people saying you need to come to New York, Andy Dunn was the one that convinced me to move to New York. Interesting. It's like you know what. You know, I was single at the time and I was like, I was just turning 50 and I'm like, you know what, now, it's, now's the time. Now, like I'm going to have my New York experience. And so again, I go back from having large scale, big teams, lots of stores, lots of influence, lots of money to a startup where I was the only person. Mm. And so he's like, let's create this and you can build whatever you want the store to look like, build whoever you want to hire at the headquarters. Like let's, let's create magic together. And so that's what we did. So like the first store that opened, the first one that I did uh, was up there on LA on La Brea. La Brea. Yeah. But yeah, but I like designed the store. I hired the team. I wrote the training. Um, I did a lot of press. I did all the vision merchandising. I did everything for that store incredible and it was really successful the street's a little wonky i know even today like it's a little mishmash so i won't say that the revenue came through but the 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 concept and like what it is um was so that was store number one um, of like the future of bonobos well it's interesting too because like i was sold on the idea that this is how retail would operate and now this has been what 10 years or so uh, the better part of 10 years, if it hasn't been 10 years yet and come to find out nobody else is doing it this way. So why do you think that is? I'm, it, I think there's a couple of things. I think it really works well in the men's space and mm-hmm. spend, you know, even the last four I spent, you know, in, in a high, like a high touch women's business, mm-hmm. you know, the way men and women shop, and I don't want to generalize here, sure. but they, they do shop differently. You know, then sure. I sold you know, to, to men, I could get them into a guide shop and like, let's figure out what size shirt you are. Let's figure out how you want your chinos to fit. Let's get you, you know, a suit. Like so there's always some kind of reason. Yeah. And, and a lot of men don't know the first thing about how to shop for themselves. It's like my wife and my girlfriend buys my clothes. I don't know what size I am. She just needs to tell me that I look okay and I'm ready to go. Right. I'm like, I'm, I'm going to teach you something today about how your clothes should fit. And if you can say that to a guy and he feel like he, like his swagger is a little bit better when he walks out of like, Oh, I know how, like I'm wearing a slimmer Chino now than I've ever done before. And she thinks it looks good. It's like you win. Right. And so like this idea of like high touch education based, um, like so that customer that comes into a guide shop is really valuable. Mm-hmm. Because they they spend twice as much money as they do on the website, they're they're more they're stickier to the brand, mm-hmm. like everything about it is is really valuable. But he, whether he walked out with it or not was really a non-issue. Ninety Got plus it. percent of it was a non-issue. You know, they were testing a women's business model doing the same thing that was not successful at all. Right, and and I can understand that having worked mostly in women's is that it's just she she the emotion behind the purchase and like i want to wear it tonight i have this i have that i'm traveling here i'm doing this um is very different than the way men think about their wardrobe right 
Oh, that's yeah. It's it's interesting. Um, and then of course you know fundraising, selling. I think it was at Nordstrom that bought them for like I don't know three hundred and ten million or something like that. It was crazy. But they uh, were an early uh, Walmart actually bought them. Oh, was it Walmart? They, that's Nord- right. Walmart. Nordstrom was an early investor. They were um, they were their biggest wholesale account. Right. Maybe, maybe still are. Yeah. Yeah, and so the I guess I always thought about it like the product's fine. It is. It's it's guy wore it every day. Like I All liked right. it. Yep. Uh, but I I really loved the idea of like our only intention for everyone that walks in the door today is to create an experience that this is and to, to teach you something unique. And so to answer your question, I'm not sure why more haven't done that because it's a, it's exactly what the challenge was last year, like too much inventory stuck in stores that needed to be pulled back into distribution centers. And it's a like high margin business you know, you can upsell as much as you want. Like there's a lot of positive around it, right. but I do think it's a specific within certain product categories, you know, like you can't sell shoes this way. You can't really sell luxury this way. Mm-hmm. Um, you can't, I don't think you can sell any version of women's this way. Like it's the, it's fits within a mold that works right. really well for them. And, and, and it's scaled really quickly, as you know, like investment. So once we figured out the model, then it was just like store in a box. And I yeah. opened, there was a time where we were opening a store every two weeks. Jeez. So I was we were like, like constantly like signing deals, going here, traveling. I would go and do press for a couple of days and Andy would come in and cut the ribbon and go. Wow. Like we were just booming and, but incredible people, um, highly entrepreneurial. Yeah, I'd love this of like, do whatever you want. Like this is a startup. And I had never been in that situation before. It was the first time that I could actually just use all of this experience and, and create something that I think still stands today. They still use the same model, the same fixture packages. You know, I see a new store in my travels and like, that's pretty cool that that was me. Hold your head high. Yeah. Yeah, It's nice. Feel proud. Yeah. Yeah, You really, I I do. Yeah. Okay. So then. Then you go to, I hate to keep going down your resume like this, but because it's so fascinating to me, because I'm so into this stuff. So YSL, was that Eddie Slimane's time? It was. So like pencil thin black jeans is like, you know what I mean? Like just skin tight black jeans. Skin tight. Leather jeans. You know, I threw up, correct, which I have all in my closet. Oh, good for you. Because it's phenomenal. It's phenomenal. And... You know, as you could uncover from this conversation, I didn't think I was the right guy for this job. Mm. So it was like like confidential search, like um, we need someone. I'd never run businesses in South America. This was a job for North and South America. And at the peak of like, you know, yeah. at, like on fire. Yeah. And I'm like, I just, I, I love American brands. I love the way I lead is just in a very like American way. I describe it and I just don't think I'm, I'm not your guy. And they just kept coming back, kept coming back. And they flew me to Paris a couple of times and you know, there was someone in the job. So, which also always makes it weird. That's happened to me twice now. Right. And so did the price keep getting higher? But it, it did. Yeah. And you know, the clothing allowance kept getting bigger. And I was like, cause I loved working at Bonobos. I loved it. 
and because it was pre-sale like i just i was having a grand time right um but it was like you know 57th street at the flagship and the the office and you're in paris you know four six times a year and i was like i just how can you turn that down um and and it was incredible same like high growth i opened several stores i learned traveled all over South America and learned how to run that business, um, hired great people. Uh, like it was unbelievable. It was now, an this unbelievable was, job. This was PPR or caring? This was PPR, right? No, it's caring. Oh, it was caring by the time you were there. Okay. It was caring. I, I was there in the transitional year at Gucci. Ah, uh, yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. And I don't know how your experience was, but for me it was, <clears throat> Not good. <laughs> Not good. You know, I, I really tried to be, you know, the, there was a lot of setup of like, you're going to get to do this and get to do that. And I think I just didn't, <clears throat> you know, when you're hired for a job where you don't get to meet anyone, like you don't get to go to the office and like see oh, right. the vibe. Um, I, I, it's, it puts a real challenge on it. <clears throat> and and the the business was really like upside down in some of the big flagships. It was just it was a it was a huge job. Right. So I loved the experience of having the opportunity to do it and to kind of put my name on it and understand what it really means in the world of luxury. Like how does that? Because this is like high celebrity time. You know, I just, the men's star on Rodeo and the women's flag on Rodeo. Yeah. Um, we're both like, you know, there's a, a VIP floor on the women's, in the women's store. Um, it was this constant, um, like, barrage of, of celebrities and work and um, and the revenue just kept growing. You know, just all of it. Just, you, know, you can think about a really complex business at a moment oh, yeah. in time. Yeah. But this was it. And, um, but I, where I, and I had really great success. I think where I struggled was this kind of um, mindset around a global brand that doesn't do things in unique ways mm-hmm. at the time um, based on, on who the, the customer and the team is and the kind of culture of that country. Um, instead of like, this is, and they, they have a lot of power. So they don't right. actually have, they don't have to. So right. I didn't, I wasn't judging them for it, but I also like, as you can figure out, like I, I'd love to figure out what the problem is. Yeah, I was going to say it wasn't a challenge for you. And coming from Bonobos where everything was flipped, right? C- correct. Correct. The challenge was just in um, kind of hiring and uncovering, you know, the uncovering the, the opportunities because you're not really giving them feedback on product. You know, Eddie's product is Eddie's product. Yeah, I was going to say it sounds like Apple. He doesn't, he doesn't care. You know, he yeah. lived in LA and would come to visit the stores in the middle of the night and have to have the store open for him. So we could look at the product. He didn't never spoke to anyone. And so it was like this, you know, you've got to figure out how to sell what you own, which is a great retail thing. Like, you yes. know what guys, we need to do a hundred thousand dollars today. This is what we've got in stock. Let's have a great attitude. Like, let's make this happen. And I can, I can do that. The, kind of building for the future and also you know, kind of the infrastructure behind running like a big U S business mm-hmm. uh, was not always well received. 
And so I I found myself in a similar place of like, I love this here, but this is, this is not going to be my future. Right. And so it was right at the end, like Anthony Vaccarello became the new creative director. Of course, there's a lot of drama around that business started to fall off a cliff and everyone's in like panic mode. And I was like, I just think this is a really good time for me, you know, to about two years in like to say goodbye. Right. Uh, And I was, I'm still today, I'm comfortable with it. Right. And there's a lot of people that, you know, you stay for the money, you stay for the title, you stay for the job, you stay for all of it. The leather jackets. The leather jackets, (laughs) the shows in Paris. Like there's a lot to say yes to. Right. I am just, I'm not, those are not things that drive me. Right. I, I thrive on people doing well and growing. That's good. To, and, and, and providing opportunities to the best of my ability. Um, and I like to surround myself with companies that do that. Yeah. What's a job in retail you feel is underappreciated and or deserves more shine, if you will? I think always it's the store manager. Like store manager, assistant manager is the one that is often, you have the biggest impact on the success of that business and that team. You're hiring you have the final decision on all the team hires. You have the biggest influence on the customer experience. Right. You know, all of it. The store manager is, is for me, one of the most, if not the most important role. You know, I didn't think about this until just now. Uh, my best friend was in town this last weekend. And, you know, we talked about how culture in, in corporate America has changed and how, like, people get together with meetings and they want more appreciation and more pats on the back and this and that. And it's like, they want to be told thank you. And, and, you know, in, in old school, maybe mindset train of thought is, well, your paycheck is your thank you. Like you got hired to do a job and thank you for doing it. Here's your paycheck, you know, like there's no. And so with you, like, how do you balance that where it's like, look, man, like you're, you're, you're paid to do a job. We need you to do your job versus leading with empathy and saying, oh, thank you. You know what I mean? So that's got to be a delicate balance, right? It, it is. But I think, you know, the best leaders can figure out that different people need different things from you at different times. Mm-hmm. And that you, it is my responsibility as a leader to, to evolve and mold my leadership style based on what people need from me, mm-hmm. not the other way around. Right. And so if they need more pats on the back and a little less of like, hey, if you don't make your goal, you're out. Mm-hmm. And a little more of like the motivation on the back end and that the end result is the same. Right. Then, then that's my job. That's yeah. how I think about leadership is ask more questions, do listen a lot more before you just tell someone what to do. Yeah. Two ears, one mouth. It's correct. It's yeah. correct. And, and some people respond really well to that. And I think that's where you can really use your craft Mm -hmm. and when do you need to be highly directional Mm -hmm. and like, I need this by this time. And when can you say, well, what do you think is a reasonable expectation for you to get this done? Right. And, but I'm also someone that would say like, when I set the goal, I, I will expect you to achieve it. Sure. But I'll do it in a way that you will feel really motivated to get it done. Um, and I think people would describe me I'm just looking at the, the time too. Like if we could go on for hours. I know we could, we're going to be wrapping up. I promise. <laughs> yeah, it's fine. Um, 
you know, as someone who is, I, I am direct because I also, at this point in, in my career and probably even much earlier, I know what works. Right. And so like, I can give that direction and that um, kind of purpose behind things and do it in a really motivational way, but in a way that sets clear expectations. Right. What advice would you have for retail managers, given what you just said about them as well, um, that just can't seem to get to the next step, be it regional positions or whatever? Like, what 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 should managers be doing differently? I would, or an additionally, maybe maybe it's not anything different, but additionally, that's a really good clarifying point. I would say network more, like mm. build your infrastructure so that you have an entire like advisory team around you of retail leaders, executives, people you admire. Um, because today we have LinkedIn, like we have resources that can provide opportunities for you to drop people messages and to like see people like me on video on there. And that there's a lot that you can do to build your network and, sure. but, but be proactive about it because those job my jobs came, I'd never looked for a job ever. All of my jobs have come for dec three decades from my network. Yeah. And that was intention behind of like following up, asking questions that people know who I was, like that I, um, you know, in an authentic way. Sure. And I think the thing, the addition is spend a little more time um, thinking about yourself and what you need and maybe a little less time of exactly what your company needs all the time. And I say that in a, in a positive way, but I do think we as, as retail leaders, we get very sucked into thinking about what the company needs from us every day instead of saying, this is what I need. It's like when you interview with regards to, it's as much of an interview for you interviewing the company as it is the company interviewing you. Like maybe you don't find there's a fit. But I think we get roped into this like, oh, but oh my God, it's YSL. Like I'll have this product allowance and this and that, you know what I mean? That's exactly right. And, and I think it's because of some of that, like you're only as good as the companies you work for and the jobs you've had is that this intention behind the, um, behind your resume, you know, people do think my background is really unique. I'm like, but it's not an accident. Right. And, but I think a lot, like you get like 10 years, 20 years in and you haven't broken that ceiling. I think that it's time to like build a different network. Right. And let people know who you are. I love when I'm on a webinar or speaking somewhere and I get messages of like, I really love what you said. Can I have 15 minutes of your time for Zoom? I had a call on Friday night with a young woman who heard me on a different podcast who like, just reached out and said, you know, they immigrated from, she and her mom immigrated to Maryland from West Africa. Her mom's worked at Target for the last 10 years uh, and has not had a great experience for whatever mm -hmm. reason. And there's nothing I think to do with Target in particular, but, the, but she has, she's graduating from college. She wants to work at Target in a leadership role to influence it from the ground up based on her mom's experience and asked a lot of really smart questions. And, you know, I'm, I'm like, I want to be part of this board. I want to help you. I'm going to wow. give you some advice. And like, let's, 
have some, some practice calls, like let's look at your resume, let's do some of that. You need people in your life who will help you yes. like break free yeah. sometimes. Wait, so she was making that outreach for her mom. For her mom and, and for herself. Oh, okay. I was going to say, because like, you know, the old adage too, you know, I'm sure it's not Target, right? It's um, the adage of people quit managers, not companies. Yeah, it's, it's very true because yeah. I get a lot of messages from, from Target employees who have bought my book who it seems like the messages actually align really well. Cool. brand to brand to brand and but i'd love that idea of like hey i saw someone who offered advice like use it take it like do right. something with that i didn't do that enough early on and i just encourage um like networking events there's all kinds of things you know the pandemic has given us like webinar like anything we'd ever want to learn on a webinar right, like, right. use it but like what did you do when you watch someone and I, once I figure that out, I would see someone somewhere. I'd be like, you're cool. Like, I want to meet you. Yeah. Like I started doing that more. And these are people that are in my life that I know have influence. Awesome. Yeah. Well, all right. We have to talk about the book. It's called Retail Pride. Um, part of the reason I wanted to talk so much about your background in the industry is because if for nothing else, it will just add to the absolute substantiated evidence that you clearly have the credibility to write a book about retail. So what drew you to it? We kind of glazed over your time at Intermix, which is which is probably cool, but it is kind of ironic because they're owned by Gap or at least were. Correct. So, so full that circle. was part of, part of the draw, full circle, which you know yeah. was kind of empowering to me. Yeah, of course. Yeah, so... Um, totally different business, multi-brand business all the while where you've been kind of mono brand up to that point. Um, you can talk about Intermix if you'd no, like. No, I was just going to say, I, I would just say, you know, it's also just, I would add on to my point from store managers is understand what you're really good at. What do you love to do? Yeah. When I figured out that I was really good in like front of the house you know, sales, motivating, selling people side of it. Then I wanted to work for brands where that was important. Mm. And then I always had like a great store ops person next to me, LP, these things. Like I, I want nothing to do with that. Like inventory, back of house organizations. I'll, I'll like, I, okay, great. Just tell me when it's done. And so that, but for some brands, so we, even within Gap Inc., I never wanted to work at Old Navy. Old Navy doesn't, it's process over, over service. Right. And you know, they're a $10 billion brand. They do everything right. But it's just a different, like choose the company that's going to celebrate your strengths. Yeah. Intermix is a high touch service model that is like, it's, this, it's the St. Laurent client, of, but it's where she buys her clothes. Yeah. She buys shoes and handbags at St. Laurent and she shops at Intermix. So like oh, I already fair. knew the client, yeah. like I understand how it operates. I could take those clients to fashion week shows in New York and um, I could say celebrate her. And so like that idea of like high touch service, high culture, like gap owned for me, it was a really great combination of things. And I had a really good run. I love it. And so the, my intention on the book was really just around um you know, how am I going to use this experience as my, with, with a bigger legacy? How do I mm. 
to take this beyond the teams that I have personally led, both big and small. And and I knew I have a unique point of view. I know that. I, and what I also knew was that no one was speaking to those store teams. Mm-hmm. You know, that kind of store manager and below was exactly who I wanted to talk to. Cool. And that that's the biggest population of retail employees. There's no book written for them. There's you can find great leadership books, Simon Sinek, and people that like get you motivated. Sure. Do they understand retail? And like the, the, the challenge, the fun, the joy, the pride, but the challenge and that it's real mm-hmm. and maybe some advice about how to grow your retail career. Um, and not, I didn't want to say this is how the industry is going to evolve. Right. Is there, there are books for that, um, you know, that, that have pretty short shelf lives because the industry has evolved very quickly. Right. I wanted to write something and I will write a second and a third that are about um, celebrating your retail career and the choices you've made and to be really proud of it because I wasn't always proud of it. It was like, I loved it, you know, but at a party in LA full of like celebrities and I say I'm a district manager at the Gap, they were like, you know, is that something I was proud of? I was among my friends, was I outwardly proud of it, you know, and tell people how great it is to work in retail? Not always. Well, it's funny because it's always viewed as such a, like a minimum wage type of job and like, no matter who you are. And like, as I went up through the ranks and and got to manage, you know, some, some luxury stores and things like that, you know, people would be like, well, is this what you're going to do? Like... And I'm like, well, I make six figures. Like, I don't understand. Like, I'm doing okay. Like, you know what I mean? I know exactly what you mean. And uh, I think I I had the very, and I do, big intentions to change that conversation. Right. And the fact that the book has been, you know, kind of read all over the world, and that that the the challenges are the same everywhere. Right. is really is really motivating to me and that you know the, the fact that it's an undercelebrated career yet has an enormous impact on the on the economy and the world is um and particularly today and i think it's while the percent of total commerce may you know, shift to, to, you know a bigger chunk of it um you know, of the like 75, 25 stores being 75 shift to like 72, 28, it will for sure. But 72% of a $4.4 trillion US commerce business, I'll take that all day. It employs, you know, 30 million people who do this work. I'll I'll take that all day. And and sure, I can talk about e-com and talk about its importance, but none of this matters without incredible people that right. show up every day at their store and do the hard work, like show up for brands, show up for their customer, their team who represent those brands, no matter how big the, your marketing budget is, no matter like all the things you're doing behind the scenes, that whatever happens when that customer walks into the door of the store is what matters most to any brand. And that sure. is only influenced by the team that works in the store yeah did you write it yourself did you work with a writer editor no i did it all myself all you and i think it it didn't 
it took me several months, but that was just like 6 a.m. every day writing a couple hundred words because it was just with anyone that has worked for me or read it, they're like, this is like having a conversation with Ron. It is very much, they're my words. It's my tone. It's my energy. It's me. Um, and just in a book. So that's why it didn't take me very long to write it. Wow. What do I want to say? Like, this is um, everything I've said in the last hour is what's in the book. Yeah. Because it's just, it's authentic. Right. Um, and the fact that it became a bestseller literally on like day two wow. of release was like, there's a story here. There's a message that needs to be bigger. How did you find your publisher? Like, how does that, that all back end stuff? Um, so I, I did a lot of research and asked a lot of questions. So I used um, Scribe Media, who okay. then also support, like they'll do some of the editing. And um, I had kind of pretty specific idea of what I wanted the book to like look and feel like, but they help with that. They help you kind of get up on Amazon and ready to go. Um, so I own 100% of the, the rights. It's not a percentage deal, but they, you kind of, pay them to help support getting it off the ground. What does something like that cost? They have a package um, that they have like an, um, a guided author workshop that they call, and then like a year's worth of support. It's about 15 K I think 15 K 18 K. Yeah. I mean, it's not inexpensive. No, but it's also like $1,500 a month kind of thing is like, correct. You know, that, that doesn't sound atrocious to me. No, and and without it, you know, trying to self-publish and some of that is, you, know, you don't become an Amazon bestseller like that quickly. Yeah. If you don't have kind of the infrastructure behind you. Yeah. Um, and it's just been such a joy. That's awesome. I've, I've, I've now I'm. This is what I do full time. Um, I'm definitely going to do a second one. I want to speak to people in stores. Yeah, you're, all the time. You're not to cut you off, but you're going on tour. Going on tour. Uh, so I'm going to host a show called Retail in America and we'll, it starts in the spring in an Airstream trailer. And I want to just talk to everyone that works in retail. Uh, and that's, I literally can't speak to 30 million people, but I can speak to a lot of them of like, what do you love? What do you need? Um, celebrate them and hear their stories. I'm calling like the journey to discover everyday retail heroes because there are thousands of them and they don't have the voice or this platform, the idea. Um, so I want to put them on, you know, kind of YouTube and, and lives and podcasts and, and celebrate this industry. Just, you know, a lot of like what, what you do, but I want to be out there. I want to do it from the field. Right. I can't do this from New York city. Wait, so set the scene. You're traveling in an Airstream. Are you hosting your event like next to the Airstream? Probably. I'm calling it like campfire talk <laughs> campfire talks with Ron. This, this be- is this is Tahoe Roots. This is Tahoe Roots. <laughs> it totally is. I love this. I hadn't even put that together, but yes, it is. Well, there's plenty more where this came from, Ron. Like I got you. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Wesley. Uh yeah, that so that's um kind of giving <clears throat> everything up, including my St. Laurent wardrobe, because no one needs that in a campground. And it goes committing to at least a year of being on the road. Okay. Well, I'm at least going to hold you to the fact that you still have to wear all black. <laughs> that That's not even you know, negotiable. I did right. buy like a 
bright orange corduroy like overshirt that's <laughs> from this very cool new brand that I discovered. But um, yeah, it's like this is very like campground chic. Well, the, yeah, the shacket is in right now. It's the shacket. It's exactly what it is. Yeah. <laughs> well, cool. Well, I hope to see you on the road. So you'll have to keep me posted or at least send me all the dates and whatnot because I'll come see you for sure. Well, I would love that. Awesome. It's going to be a lot of fun. Great. Well, listen, Ron, I can't thank you enough. This is this, I like almost as you alluded to, we could go on for hours. Um, My pleasure. I'm glad that we're friends and we can continue this conversation. It's, awesome. We need voices like yours you know, out there talking about the industry and people who are doing good work. Great. Well, thanks so much, Ron. And uh, we'll catch up soon. All Sounds right. great. Thanks. Leslie. Okay. Take care. Bye. Bye. Another big thank you to Ron for taking part in the show. He and I actually met up a couple weeks ago for a coffee and a morning pre-brunch cocktail, and I'm confident it won't be our last. As usual, thanks to Jensen Reed and Super Beautiful for providing the theme track, as well as the clear audio for the noise-canceling headphones. That's it for Season 5, guys. This is 75 episodes in, obviously with a bonus episode there a week ago. Uh, I really appreciate you guys tuning in. I will see you in about a month for the launch of Season 6. It's going to be exciting. Thanks so much. Ciao.